Welcome to Lean Back. I'm Lisa. And I'm Laura. And today we're talking about climate. And also, this is the first time we've been back in the studio since of the mass extinction of COVID began. So I have to say that it feels delightful to see you in the IRL. It feels delightful, even though we're talking about kind of a dark subject and something that has been looming, even though COVID has taken more of our attention in the last year. There's like this other looming threat like a slow armageddon um that's happening and has been happening like in concert with covid i just thought it would be appropriate for us to start like in our first episode back talking about peril yeah (laughs) the peril that we're in i mean yeah it's the peril that we're in but it's also the peril that colonizers made so I don't know. I I dwell a lot in thinking about climate and climate change, about um, how humans have used capital to destroy their own space, you know, and obviously not all humans contribute to ecological devastation in the same way, right? So sure, the West for sure, the U.S. for sure, white communities for sure. But it seems to me that one of the hard shifts that people have made generally in the U.S. during COVID is from thinking that climate change was some sort of external thing happening to them to recognizing that it's something that we're producing with every decision that we make. And I think that is probably a good shift in perception, understanding of the structural challenges and and also I think opportunities of climate change. I don't mean that in an extractive capitalism way. I mean in a human shared humanity, you know, collective solidarity way. So it's interesting when you think about like the opportunities, for example, and like what we need to do to respond to the climate crisis, because this is a problem that doesn't stop at any borders how do you get alignment across multiple geopolitical players when there is that history of colonization and when so many countries acted destructively for so long, even after we knew what the consequences were? And there are, you know, countries who haven't yet had the opportunity to benefit from the resources within their own country. So, like, how do you get an India, for example, which is still a developing country, which has a long history of colonization, mitigate the impact of the development of that country, given that they never had the opportunity to pursue their own development? (laughs) And how do you get alignment on climate goals when we've had uh, economic disparity for so long and there's been exploitation and... Not everyone has had a fair chance, you know, from a resource perspective, from a decision-making perspective, and when the costs are so high and the consequences are unequal across countries too. Yeah, I mean, I 
I'm probably not in the majority on this opinion, but whatever. Like, there is no climate path forward. It's not also a labor path forward. So, you know, like, COVID happened, and then I've got all these friends who are like, small businesses, support small businesses. And I'm like, well, fuck. I do not want all the styrofoam. Like, I, right? And then you're not going to take my reusable stuff because COVID. And I've been thinking a lot about I mean, obviously, the individual solutions are not the way out of colonization and capital. Okay, so that aside, though, I feel like this moment has been problematizing, right? How we have been thinking about problems generally, you know, and solutions, and perhaps recentered a different kind of conversation. Like, you know, I looked at the numbers in Arkansas and it was like three times the number of people retired this year than were predicted to. That's a labor strike. That is a, they are withholding labor from the labor market. And I think about all these people who don't want to work in wage jobs, low wage jobs, right? And service in particular. And they're refusing to, that's a wildcat strike. So there is no way to think about the climate and climate emergency without thinking about the concomitant labor emergency that we are also living through. And I think that is a source for some, I don't know, creativity and optimism about the way that people are changing their attitudes towards consumption and production and accumulation for sure. So how does how do you think that operationalizes for communities? Because I see a lot of discourse around that being like very blamey, very not understanding choices like that as actual protests of working conditions of capitalism when the actual protest doesn't get read as a protest and as like each individual's choice not to work and often a choice that's maligned (laughs) yeah you know in the media like how does that get organized into something that produces a sea change i mean i don't know it's hard for me to disaggregate that from just like white techno rationalism right or white people like Science will solve the problem. It is very rational. If you do X, then Y. Causality is real. And I just don't think that that is the right framework for thinking about the climate. Again, you know, I may be in the minority here, but it seems to me that there have been lots of cultures that have been railroaded. And I use that term, like, intentionally, because the way that the railroads perpetuated colonization, but, like, that they lost their climate. They lost their land. They lost their relationship with the earth. They lost centuries of stewardship and land cultivation. And I mean, so this moment that we're living in is particularly tough for white people because they are being affected by things that they feel like they are out of control about. And so they have a ton of anxiety and, and I think probably feels sensible ones have guilt about it perhaps and grief. And so there is this toxic stew of white feelings that also decreases white people's inertia to participate in the larger conversations about the decisions that they make collectively and individually every day to support their own, you know, structures of governance and power in ways that disproportionately affect people of color and indigenous peoples and that change whole patterns of existence around the globe. On the other side, the white people are going to build cities that manage climate change, and they're going to let all the poor people die. So, like, it's, this is not a thing that technology won't produce some limited solutions for. And let's be honest about the fact that those 
those are going to be white solutions for most of the white people. Right? So that's just going to be a kind of climate apartheid that's going to be, that is emerging. Oh, we already kind of see it in places that are, have the most visible. Um, so like I, I'm thinking about California and the multiple realities that exist there with like the wildfires and this year, uh, like much of the West had horrible air conditions because of the smoke. There was like melting asphalt in Portland, but like every day the golf courses were watered and the, there are certain communities that go unaffected, even in the midst of smoke in the background. Right. So we have to return, I think, to the individual choices. Like, can we rely on individuals to make choices that are better in the long run? Because we know right now with the current climate, the changes that we make now to make improvements like won't actually take effect until 2050. So basically nothing we do right now can really move the needle, but we're talking about our future, the future of the planet. So how does an individual decision factor into that? Like when do people realize like we shouldn't water this golf course every day or we shouldn't buy fast fashion from Singapore or we should eat less meat. Um, like when do individual decisions, like how does that play into it or does it ever, will people ever take responsibility for their impact? It's a great question, but I mean, we're living through this moment of like hyper-political nihilism, so my answer is definitely no. Um, on the other hand, though, you know, like I have a bunch of friends and we talk a lot of in Arkansas who are doing rural like land conservation, talking about land trusts and about saving land, not really in a paternalist like white sense because they're they're not white, but you know, like in a sensibility that not the land is not meant to be owned by individuals and that it is a shared commitment to coexist with and not own. And so I do think that there are opportunities to shift the way that we think about ownership and stewardship and consumption, all those things. And that's important consciousness raising stuff. And it should not be relegated as totally insignificant because I think the ethical questions, right, are actually part of the individual's responsibility to make decisions for themselves and with their community. But I think that the moment that we're living in right now provides some opportunities to maybe push back against the cult of the individual. Like Trumpism is going to collapse, obviously. Um, and it may not be as fast as some of us want, but it's not sustainable. It's a paranoid style that collapses under the weight of its own hubris, like, you know, all in the forms of like authoritarian nonsense. But the anti-science side of Trumpism, I think also is going to face challenges moving forward. And you're already seeing that waning with people getting vaccinated or getting boosters or getting their flu shots or whatever, even though that we're seeing like resurgent fash stuff happening around mask mandates and right. Mandatory vaccinations generally in you know, Florida and Texas and places like that. It's that's not a sustainable positionality politically or socially. And I do think that that offers us opportunities to think through the way that individualism our ability to interact in complex systems where we can think through accountability 
in more productive and in ways that produce a different kind of solidarity. So I do think the moment offers us an opportunity to think through the limits of the cult of the individual because it is failing. I think you're right that nothing happens like on the individual scale. Like there has to be a collective effort. So it's like, how does that get organized? Like our obvious answer is like with government action. Or movements Uh, or social movements. Or social movements. But there has to be a momentum that's created from somewhere, whether that's, I mean, everyone right now is so pressed by economic anxiety that it's really hard to make decisions outside of that matrix of how am I going to pay the rent? How am I going to, (laughs) and if you're living in a climate stress area, like, am I going to make it through the next hurricane season? Am I going to make it through the next wildfire season? Um, So it's hard to get out of that decision matrix. There has to be some kind of incentive or momentum that people can get behind for climate future. So what actors need to be involved? Like corporations, for example, like the oil and gas companies are here to stay, right? So how do we transition them from the culprits into forces of change? Or is that even possible? Well, I think it's, it might be possible, even if it's unlikely. And I think that, I think a lot of white people get bogged down in the ecological grief, right? Of like, I'm not going to get to take my kid on vacation to this place. Or like, I can't get to this place during COVID, right? So white people are finding themselves in the West up against limits produced by climate. I think that's probably good for white people, you know, to hit those limits and see that they're not omniscient. They can't, they're not all powerful and they can't over, there's some things that they can't overcome by sheer will of their whiteness. But I also think that aligning those folks who are well-intentioned, regardless of the scale, is actually productive, not just for changing the climate dynamics themselves or even creating solidarity among the people, but in teaching people how to imagine different futures. Like in the West is in the United States in particular is as an idea, but also as a quote unquote democracy is like 60 years old. So like if we date it from the voting rights act. So with this, we are living through a moment of such total political naivete and immaturity. And for me, that means that there there's all this creative stuff on the horizon. Like I would like to see, you know, I think I fantasize about it, seeing a municipal core of like gardeners who plant your yard. Yards are stupid. So, you know, it's like, can we fill that with food, please? It's a useful space. You know, let's fill it with food or habitat or whatever, right? Like, could we just have a crew of people who are part of our civic structures that go and tend to that? Because I'll tell you, I don't know shit about gardening food in my yard on this rocket rocky mountain that we live on so i don't know anything about that i don't have space to learn about that but there are lots of people who are into that i would like to pay them a lot of money to caretake this otherwise unusable land that's decorative which is like so self-indulgent and fit it doesn't even have to be productive in some like humans have to consume it way but can we think creatively about the patchwork split, whether it's cooling for shade or whether it's habitats for pollinators or whatever, or whether it's watersheds or whether whatever it is, right? Like, I mean, especially in the South, water's going to be a huge deal. So 
I would like to hear more people talking about water and the necessity to like make sure that it's clean and that there's a bunch of it and that it's equally distributed and not privatized by Nestle. So in some ways, I, I actually don't think that getting people to work together on some of these things is that hard. I just think people lack imagination. I like that you mentioned ecological grief because I think that provides an incentive to do some of that creative thinking, if only for people to not have to change their lifestyles that much. Napa Valley is part of what's burning. Like if we want to continue to have nice wines, if people want to continue to have the wines that they want to have and the coffee that they want to have, they have to think about how that stuff grows in new environments because a lot of where that stuff grows now, like is rapidly changing and will continue to change over the next 50 years. So like thinking about what is able to grow in new places and where can we like rebuild certain areas that like aren't meant to be a downtown, but would be a great like agricultural plant. Like there's some, some types of land that are meant to flood every once in a while. And so like, how do you do city planning in a way that accommodates the fact that our world is changing and certain areas aren't going to be able to sustain like the current environment, you know? (laughs) So part of the ecological grief is like, how do we continue to have what we want given the constraints that the environment's placing on us? Because white people, like they will find a way to not have their lives disrupted. Like they will pay for an $8 taco on a taco boat (laughs) instead of a taco (laughs) truck. You know what I mean? Like they will find a way so that their lifestyle is not, disrupted but how do you do that in a way that like makes the process of people who are migrating easier how do we make it so that as people are migrating or as we're seeing more refugees that they become a part of a community that's rebuilding or the fact that we're rethinking like what grows where like I think there's opportunities like to change how we do city planning and how we do zoning. And right now I think white people have a lot of control over what gets built and when as a way to preserve the value of their neighborhoods. But what happens when we literally need more space? We need more people living here. We need more people to work at the restaurants. And in order for them to work at the restaurants, they need to be able to afford to live in your neighborhood. So like, how do you create space to support the networks and I don't think we're going to change as people, (laughs) you know, like I think we want the lifestyles that we want. I don't see capitalism like undergoing a fundamental shift, but I do think we can make it more inclusive and more livable. I mean, I'd like to see taco trains (laughs) (laughs) incentivize, you know, supersonic travel across the U.S., but uh, that's obviously a pipe dream. I wish it weren't, but I think you're right. I mean, inclusivity is a goal. I just, you know, there is also part of this moment that is just so fundamentally anti-science, and I guess I didn't realize it because when I was in high school and I started doing, you know, competitive policy debate, I had a couple of topics, you know, when I was a teenager that were all on the environment, so I just assumed everybody knew, like, that the argument that SO2 causes cooling was garbage. Everybody just knew that. Didn't they read about that? Haven't they read about, like, you know, critiques of the population bomb or 
you know, critiques of Malthusian economy. I just assumed that people, like, adult people knew this stuff. And because I was 14 and 15, like, I was like, oh, now I'm seeing how the adults in the room talk about this. No, Lisa, they don't know. So I feel like there's a lack of science. The lack of science literacy is also in the same way that it's problematic for COVID because people are eating horse dewormer, you know, in the grocery store. It's also a problem because they fundamentally do not understand how plastics work. <laughs> right or how petrol is produced or what fracking does or why you wouldn't want to take the top of a mountain off for a pipeline etc 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 and so there's a sense where i the crushing amount of knowledge that i wish adult human people had is i have more grief about that in some ways than i do ecological grief because i'm like oh god like with some scientific knowledge about consequences, <laughs> causality, there might be a, a chance to change the the humans and their um, the way that they manage their anxiety. And I, I think it's sad that we're trapped in the spiral. Like their anxiety means that they shop more shit on Amazon instead of like you know gardening or whatever. But um, but I think you're probably right about the inertia of human change on this particular topic in particular. Yeah. And, and the lack of familiarity with like scientific consensus, I think delays the solution. Cause like, we can't even agree on the science. We can't even agree on what's happening and we can't even agree on like what the right steps forward are. No, it's not that we can't agree. It's that the, there's the production of white denial as an affect to refuse engagement with uh, the reality that, you know, people without privilege are being forced to live in. It is, it is not a lack of grief. Yeah, so the <laughs> denial is deliberate. Like, yeah. there has been a, a concerted effort to on the part of oil and gas companies in particular to prevent the shift. I mean, they've made massive investments in fracking. They've made massive investments in offshore drilling. And they want that investment to pay dividends as long as possible. So while they have the resources to switch to more renewable energies, I'm, they have been invested in spreading <laughs> information that is inconsistent with the scientific reality. And so... There is a deliberate charge against making change because people are, shareholders are benefiting, right? But I think we have to change the incentive structure. So, you know, like you can't profit off what's actually actively harmful. And like whatever we need to do, these companies have made tenfold their investment on fracking rigs at this point. Like that's enough. <laughs> you know, we just have to enforce or incentivize some kind of transition away from that. I think the Biden administration is without a doubt trying to do that. Um, I don't think it will be like a panacea, obviously, but I mean, for every person who's like, I'm going to give up beef, you know, deep water horizon is still going to explode and dump a shitload of oil into the Gulf of Mexico. So I'm like, I'm happy to take any pledge about anything, but if the corporations are just going to keep, you know, pumping out their trash into their brown fields or whatever, you know, then it, that is a problem. And and really, that's about large-scale accountability. We're in that moment with the, you know, the January 6th Commission and about all of the other, like, grotesque 
examples of corruption. So it is the same sort of thing that has to be managed through large scale, you know, accountability. That is not going to happen through Democratic fiat. Well, yeah, I think my focus on these companies is that like they have to be a cooperative actor instead of, I mean, like if it's going to be the Green New Deal versus the oil and gas companies, like the Green New Deal isn't going to make it. You know what I mean? Like there has to be a shift. We can't be fighting internally. (laughs) You know, we can't be bickering. Like we all have to be on the same page about this. And I, I do see a shift with the Biden administration, which I appreciate, but also like have a healthy amount of skepticism about. I do think though, you know, Biden was not my guy. Obviously I trashed him all over the podcast for the year leading up to his election. I'm I guess glad that he won because the other guy, but you know, uh, I do think that he is working to strengthen the, you know, the national labor relations board. And there's a sensibility about labor and about the earth in ways that I think we've never seen before. Deb Holland of the interior is like so massive and his choices in the courts are massive in a way about thinking about land differently and sovereignty differently. And I mean, the circuit court's decisions in Oklahoma have been very interesting, especially in Tulsa. So I do think that there is an indigenous perspective that has been um, muffled and gagged for so long um, in the last 200 years that is finding space now among what were surely unlikely allies. And I think that that is necessary. So You know, I don't think that there is a climate future that does not include a massive reassessment about turning lands back over to tribal nations and to prioritizing historical knowledge by indigenous peoples. I think that it's it's an impossible thing to assume that the technocratic governance structure of like managerial liberalism is going to fix shit on its own. But I do see some of those choices as not just like strategic DEI placement of the right bodies and, you know, in the right spaces. But I do see it as a long overdue reckoning about, you know, how, who gets to name problems and who gets to choose solutions. Because, you know, in some ways, white people fixing climate change is like, you know, the FBI investigating itself, you know, <laughs> for leaks, Department of Defense investigating itself for complicity with the Trump administration in January 6th. So there is a sensibility that we're the white people are damaged goods and probably should, should not necessarily be doing any, that kind of accountability work. And on the other hand, the white people have to do the work because they are responsible for much of the horrors and they have to take you know, some responsibility for that. So I, what I don't like is when the white people just get, you know, bogged down in the grief and it's just too much and, you know, there's fragility about it and they can't face it and, you know, can't have serious conversations about it because they are stuck in their own, you know, anxiety loop about their own guilt. And I, that, that's not a future that's palatable to me. I find that fairly grotesque. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense why so many young people are kind of leading the charge on like, asking for climate action because they're not bogged down in the guilt. They want to think about their futures and the future of their children. So we have young people who are really, you know, creating the demands. Greta Thunberg um, 
like being the preeminent one, but young people have a lot of climate anxiety. There was a massive study that came out in the Lancet last year that interviewed 10,000 teens and like 65% of them said that they felt anxiety about the future because of climate change. And something like 40% said they don't think that they'll be able to have children because oh, of the climate change. Like <laughs> climate the, change. The birth dearth is real. I mean, this is the thing that I don't think people understand like as a population issue is that, you know, people are having fewer babies. And, you know, on the one hand, it, from a casual external perspective, it's like, oh, well, you know, if there are a few people are having babies, then that's a population check. And so things won't be bad, so bad in the future. It's like, who do you think is going to take care of you in your old age? Who's going to staff the hospital? Who's going to be the teachers? Who who are going to, whatever, dig the ditches, build it, whatever, whatever. And I don't think that people have a sensibility about how climate change is going to produce massive migrations in ways that are completely incomprehensible, right? In terms of the lifestyles that they have, you know, made life just like lifelong generations long decisions about. And I also don't think that they have a sensibility about how that will reproduce potentially new, you know, eco-apartheid. So, you know, at least in the short term, I would like to see some more talking about that. I also think that there's like this push right now to be like climate optimism, right? Because white people are so fragile and they can't handle the negativity of their own politics or the confrontation with their own monstrosity as consumers or producers. But I don't know. I have ambivalence about the climate optimism, even while, I mean, probably because I'm rooted in the political pessimism, but I, I find the impulse there to be suspect and perhaps, I mean, the alarmism is not the answer, but I don't know that the climate optimism is the right call either. You know? I mean, it, it's hard to react with like complete doom. Because it's like, it we can't just assume that we're all hosed and like operate on that assumption. Because it's not true. A bunch <laughs> of white people are going to be fine. A bunch of people are going to be fine. Yeah. For, for people who are well off, I don't think the next 50 years is going to look that different. There may be more inconveniences. The cars will certainly emit less gases and there will be less vroom vroom and <laughs> probably less air travel. But on the whole, I don't think the quality of life will change that much for people who are already doing well. But I think what uh, climate change does is it amplifies inequalities that already exist. Like people who are barely, you know, subsistence farmers, um, people who are living in fragile communities um, that are barely making it. Like they are not going to do well. I mean, there's so many people who live in New Orleans, Miami, who can't afford their tires to blow out. One hurricane flooding their home would be devastating. And we know, you know, when pipes burst in Texas, uh, people lived in flooded homes where mold was growing because they couldn't afford repairs. Uh, many of them likely are still living in unsafe conditions now. There are, like, if you, there are no choices, <laughs> then climate change is going to be brutal. But I, I suspect for the people who are <laughs> in power and make the decisions, 
their life will largely be unchanged. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it'll be very interesting because in some senses, the especially the coastal climate change is going to force larger conversations about the value of peoples and culture. I think about New Orleans, right? Um, for sure, in, the, in that vein. And about what is what does it mean to safeguard culture or preserve culture or like and socially engineer space for culture. Um, and I think that those will be potentially positive, I don't know, contributions to the larger sense of belonging in some of those places. You would hope so, but like a lot of the conversations around like what the cost is around saving spaces, a, a lot of that cost is incurred by white people and they you know like who controls the decisions about like what gets saved and what gets spent oh, for sure. and like what gets sacrificed and that isn't a decision that everyone gets a say in i mean it, it's interesting like who pays for the costs especially in coastal cities because you know insurance companies are increasingly refusing to insure houses that are uh, in the path um, of likely floods because of hurricanes or because of rising sea levels. Um, and the same in the West, refusing to insure houses that are in like a dry brush forest. So who pays the cost? Like how is that tax distributed? I mean, there's a battle right now in a lot of, those communities, Florida, around Miami, about do we get funding from the federal government to rebuild? How is that tax distributed? Do we have to pay more tax to live here? And that who gets to live here then? Um, so it's uh, really curious to think through like who gets to make the decisions even on like how we handle cities as they evolve and as they deal with rising water. Because we know there are solutions to keep cities from sinking, for example, for in the short term, in the next 100 years, uh, given that there's like an anticipated sea rise that is manageable. Um, but how that takes place and who pays for it is, uh, and how that affects who gets to live where is an interesting conversation. I think, too, it'll be interesting to see where the corporations go uh, in terms because they're actually very often early adopters in ways that like public utilities or, you know, public spaces are not. And so that will be very interesting to see. I don't know. I feel like the convergence of Occupy Wall Street, the murder of George Floyd, the rise of BLM the i don't know public mm, promotion of in you know high profile indigenous people into positions of power to create spaces for conversations about land i feel like the labor strikes that are happening i i feel like this is a radically different political environment than certainly the one we started the podcast in six years ago so I think that there are a lot of really huge shifts afoot and the eco certainty about collapse 
is less stable than it probably was six years ago. And for that, I'm pretty grateful.